you have that price on carbon, you're incentivizing all the lowest cost ways of reducing greenhouse gas emissions, and you're doing it in a heartbeat. That was Adele Morris from the Brookings Institution. Welcome to The Future Ocean. What can carbon policy do for the oceans and our fisheries? This is a podcast for coastal Alaskans. Why are we talking about the future ocean and carbon policy? Because research is clear that the ocean is changing as a result of carbon emissions. And a scientific consensus tells us in no uncertain terms that we need to transition to renewable energy to avert the most extreme consequences. And because there is a lot going on regionally, nationally, and internationally to advance carbon pricing with the goal of accelerating renewable energy development. The World Bank counts 64 carbon pricing policies either in effect or committed around the world. Here at home, California and Washington State have carbon pricing systems, and a group of 11 states on the East Coast apply for a carbon price in their power sector. There are five carbon pricing bills introduced in the first session of the 117th U.S. Congress and two important trading partners with the United States, Canada, and the European Union are preparing to impose a carbon price on our goods. While people can debate the strengths and weaknesses of these policies, carbon pricing is a happening thing. The Future Ocean Podcast is an informational discussion sponsored by the Alaska Ocean Acidification Network. I'm your host, Maggie Wall. In episode four, we talked with Tony Cerna and Kevin Tempest about the cap-and-trade system as one carbon pricing model. This is episode five, and we're going to explore the other system for pricing carbon emissions. It's called a carbon fee or a carbon tax. A carbon fee or tax is just like it sounds. It's a price added to the sale of oil, natural gas, and coal. In the simplest terms, think about the tobacco tax on cigarettes. That tax makes cigarettes more expensive as an incentive to not smoke. It follows then that a well-designed carbon price on oil, gas, and coal could incentivize energy efficiency and renewable energy development, thus squeezing carbon out of the economy and avoiding the worst consequences of a warmer world and more acidic oceans. Competition in the marketplace becomes a contest over who can produce their product with the least emissions. Here's Adele Morris, Policy Director for Climate and Energy Economics at the Brookings Institution. This is a clip from the Citizens Climate Lobby 2018 conference, where she makes this case for a carbon fee or tax. For those of you who don't live and breathe economics all the time, um, with just a little bit about why economists are so unanimous in supporting a price on carbon, whether it's through a carbon tax or a cap and trade program. I happen to uh, favor a carbon tax approach for a variety of reasons. Um, but, the, but, the, but the point is very clear, and this is a huge consensus in my profession, um, and that is it's the most cost-effective way. If you have that price on carbon, you're incentivizing all the lowest cost ways of reducing greenhouse gas emissions and you're doing it in a heartbeat like as soon as we have a price on the carbon content of fossil fuels that instantly changes the incentives for which uh, power plants are going to operate more 
and which sources of energy are going to be more um, cost effective. It gives a boost to renewables relative to their fossil competitors. And it's just like absolutely the most efficient way to create a wide range of incentives across the economy. Thanks for that clip from Adele Morris, setting up our discussion about carbon fee or carbon tax systems. One way to learn about a potential carbon fee or tax policy for the United States is just to look at one of the bills introduced in Congress called the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act. Next, we're going to hear from Tony Cerna. He's the strategy director for Citizens Climate Lobby and a founder of CalFact, which is a California group formed to improve carbon pricing and to support various climate solutions in California. And we note Citizens Climate Lobby is an advocate for the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act. So there's a bill in Congress called the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act. And what it does is it puts a price on carbon. It does it upstream wherever, wherever the fossil fuels enter the economy. It starts at $15 per ton and it goes up $10 per year. And it would put us on the path to net zero emissions by 2050. And studies show that it would reduce emissions 50% by 2030. So that's in line with the targets that are being set by the White House uh, on the international stage today. One of the key factors in the Energy Innovation Act is that it returns all of the money from the carbon fee as a dividend to American households. So all the money that's collected is returned uh, equally to every single American um, with a full credit for each adult and a half credit for each child. And what that does is it allows all those households to to really uh, reap the benefits of the policy. For most low-income households, uh, they're going to come out ahead financially. They're actually going to have more money in their pockets than they'll than they'll see in any expenses that they might see. And so it actually helps people make this transition to a clean energy economy, supporting them financially through that transition. As Tony Cerna said, the fee or tax is applied when the oil, gas, or coal enters the economy, such as at the oil refinery or the coal mine. As we've heard from guest economists on the Future Ocean podcast, the strength of a market response depends in part on how high the price is. So what is the expectation in this case? This would inspire you know, an enormous amount of investment from both the public and the private sector into um, you know, electrifying all of our buildings, electrifying our transportation, creating, you know, transitioning to clean energy, renewable energy, um, and it's a technology-neutral proposal, so it doesn't pick any specific winners or losers. Um, if you know, if you're in favor of nuclear power and you can do it uh, cheaper than wind and sun, that's great. If you know, if you're looking at the question of carbon capture versus batteries versus you know some other system that we haven't even invented yet, you know, those are all on the table. Whatever the market determines is going to be the most effective at the most affordable price. That's what the market's going to going to decide, and that allows for us to find the most effective and efficient ways to reduce emissions as quickly as we can. Tony Cerna breaks down the bill into its main components. Let's listen. So the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act has three main parts of it. First, there's the price on on pollution, a carbon fee that rises steadily. Then there's the dividend where all of the money that's collected is returned to households across the country. And then there's the border adjustment which makes sure that 
American businesses can compete on a level playing field in the global marketplace. So that means that when they export products, uh, they can compete in other countries. And when other products come to, to this country, they're charged a similar carbon fee so that they are competing on a level playing field with the products produced in this country. So those three things, the fee, the dividend, and the border carbon adjustment make for a policy that is gonna reduce emissions quickly, support American households, and support American businesses through our transition to a clean energy economy. The border carbon adjustment. That might be a new term for some listeners. If the U.S. sets up a carbon fee or tax, a border carbon adjustment would be a kind of tariff placed on certain energy-intensive goods coming into the U.S. from countries that do not have a similar price on carbon. An example would be products that take a lot of power generation to produce and are traded on the international market, such as steel. The border carbon adjustment is an essential piece of the policy because it allows our businesses to compete on a level playing field. So without a border carbon adjustment, businesses in the U.S. would be paying uh, a carbon fee for all the energy that they use, and and their competitors in other countries might not be paying the same fee. Well, we want them to be able to compete on a level playing field. So when uh, a company that's outside the U.S. is producing something like steel and it's going to be imported into the U.S., they would be charged uh, at the point of import uh, with a similar carbon fee. This is something that's totally allowed by the World Trade Organization and all the uh, international tariff agreements because it's correcting an imbalance. It's not a punitive tariff. It's just one that's trying to keep the, the playing field level. And this is something that's really only possible when you've got carbon pricing. It's much harder to do with with other types of policies. Right now, we're already seeing that countries like Canada that have a carbon price or the European Union, where they've got a carbon price as well, they're both looking at the question of can they do border carbon adjustments? These are some of America's biggest trading partners, and they're looking at starting to charge American businesses uh, fees when our products are imported into their country. And so it really behooves the U.S. to implement our own carbon price rather than uh, just letting those border carbon adjustments be placed on our businesses, because then the, the money goes to our citizens rather than to the governments in Canada and the European Union. Here's another clip of Adele Morris from the Brookings Institution, speaking at the Citizens Climate Lobby Conference in 2021. She elaborates on the international situation in which Canada and the European Union are considering tariffs on U.S. goods. One thing that's happening is they're talking about border carbon adjusting our goods as they go into their countries. EU is, is, has announced it's going to start border adjusting their carbon price. That means tariffs on U.S. goods that go into the EU. Now, why are they doing that now? It's because their carbon prices get into a serious level and they don't want to disadvantage their industries. Likewise, Canada, they're talking about a carbon price going upwards of $50 a ton, perhaps more. That that's a lot of trade with the United States. And so I'm kind of hoping that this talk and now these countries don't want to create a trade war, but they're trying to solve a real problem. And so maybe discussion about tariffs against our products will start a new dialogue. And just in case you're interested in this, the Climate Leadership Council just put out a report 
that said that U.S. steelmakers are so much more carbon efficient than their competitors, including in China and in, in India, that if we did a border adjustment, we, you know, we tax domestic emissions, but we also adjust foreign goods, then U.S. made steel would displace foreign steel because we're so much cleaner and it would give our firms a competitive edge. Now, I don't think that's why we should do a carbon price with a border adjustment because I'm worried about the climate and not tilting the table for trade. But if that gets industry at the table, I think it might pose an interesting opportunity. Next, we asked Tony Cerna, what evidence is there that a carbon fee or tax can work to drive down emissions? There are a lot of examples from around the world where carbon taxes have reduced emissions. Uh, a really good one is in the, in the United Kingdom. They uh, put in a $25 carbon tax and it almost immediately uh, reduced the coal usage in their electricity system such that they are basically no longer using coal to produce electricity in the United Kingdom. And that was over just a, a few years. Uh, similarly, Canada it has implemented a carbon fee and dividend system, and they're seeing emissions reductions as well. And so there's also models that show, you know, as soon as you put this kind of price on carbon, that's going to, you know, accelerate the shift uh, to cleaner electricity. It's going to accelerate changes in, in the economy. So we have both uh, real world examples where the results uh, have been shown, as well as models that show how it's going to affect the United States economy. So people are very confident that you know, a price on carbon is going to you know, drive down emissions, it's going to be quick, it's going to be uh, simple to set up, we can start seeing emissions reductions within a year, and that those emissions can, depending on the price, those emissions can be quite dramatic. We could see 30% reductions in emissions within five years. Tony Cerna outlines the carbon price trajectory and how it would change if the reduction in emissions is not meeting intended targets. The Energy Innovation Act, the price starts at $15 per ton, and then it goes up by $10 per ton each year, and then that's indexed to inflation. And so that puts us on a trajectory that's in line with keeping the world at two degrees warming or below, even it's you know right on target with the 1.5 degree warming scenarios that they've talked about. Uh, it puts us to net zero by 2050. It puts us in line with the uh, you know, the targets set by the Biden administration. So it's a really solid, aggressive price on carbon that will make real differences across our entire economy. In addition, if it's not meeting its emission targets, there's a, the bill automatically increases the price an extra $5 each year. So instead of going up by $10 a year, it goes up by $15 a year. So that will, you know, ratchet the emissions down even quicker and keep them back, you know, get them back in line with the emissions targets that are set out in the bill. Now, there is a lot of discussion going on about advancing a carbon fee or tax system in the U.S. Engaged in these discussions are leaders from small business sectors, Fortune 500 companies, banks, agriculture, regions that produce coal, oil, and natural gas, and so on. For the Future Ocean podcast, let's just point out what our guest economists have said that there are questions to answer in the design of any carbon pricing system. Those decisions can affect a policy's success at reducing emissions and also resolve concerns people have about cost and fairness. For now, we asked our guest Tony Cerna 
how he sees a carbon fee or tax from the perspective of businesses. So when I talk to business people, they say that one of the things that's important to them is to be able to plan their future, to plan their investments, to plan their business strategy, and having price certainty, knowing what the price is going to be for their, uh, you know, the materials that go into their products, for their fuel, for their energy, uh, is really valuable to be able to, to plug that number into a spreadsheet and make it all work out. And so knowing the price of uh, emissions, the price of carbon in advance, gives them the ability to simply and easily plan for their future, know when something's going to be a good investment. They can then get the funding to make that investment. You know, they know they'll be able to pay off their loans, you know, those type of, of decisions. Whereas if you don't know what the price is going to be a year or two out, then you're making guesses, you're making projections, you're relying on someone's estimate of what the market price of something might be. Obviously, businesses deal with this all the time. No one knows what the price of oil is going to be in, in five or 10 years, but we certainly, it's much easier to make those kinds of decisions and projections when we do know what the prices are going to be. So giving businesses the best possible tools, uh, the most certainty about uh, the future allows them to plan in advance and actually make emissions reductions sooner because they can see what's coming down the line. And next, Tony Cerna talks about cost to households. People often worry with a price on carbon that it's going to raise the costs of consumers. And it is true that businesses uh, are expected that they will pass some of the costs on to consumers. Some of the costs are going to be passed on to the owners of those businesses, the investors. Um, and some of it is that the, you know, what we're seeing as we're making this transition to a clean energy future is that the costs are ending up much lower than people predicted. Uh, solar energy prices are coming down dr drastically, wind prices, battery costs are coming down, electric vehicles are soon going to be cheaper than gasoline cars uh, if they're not already, when you look at the total costs of, of the vehicles, but even the, the purchase price is coming down now so that it's going to be competitive. Um, and But there are some costs and uh, those do need to be covered in one way or another. You can cover those um, by the taxpayers paying paying those costs. You can cover those by the polluters paying those costs. Um, and you, but in any case, the way you want to do it is you want to make sure that those who are hardest hit can uh, be given the support to uh, make this transition as a society. You don't want to try and solve climate change on the backs of, of poor people, on the backs of rural America, on the backs of those who are struggling the most to make ends meet. So a lot of systems um, or the right way to design a carbon pricing system is to make sure that those people are kept whole. And that can be done by returning money directly to households. Uh, there are systems that do that on a pro rata basis. Every single household in the country uh, gets a dividend. Uh, some places only the low income houses uh, get that kind of support. There's ways to do that through the utilities. There's ways to do that through other programs that support those who might have higher exposure to, to cost. You know, there's different ways to do it, but I think that's one of the most important things in any pricing system is to make sure that the people uh, who can't afford to bear the costs are not expected to do so. Thanks to Tony Cerna with the Citizens Climate Lobby for describing the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act as one example of a carbon fee or tax system. And thank you to Adele Morris with the Brookings Institution. In addition to addressing the cost associated with a carbon fee, 
a prominent part of the national policy debate around carbon pricing, is addressing the interest of frontline communities around the country. Those are communities near large industrial activity, like refineries or coal facilities, that are already harmed by air and water pollution, blighted landscape, and other health and social impacts. One of the other carbon fee bills introduced in Congress is called the Save Our Future Act. It applies a considerable portion of the revenues from a carbon fee or carbon tax to rectify some of those disparities. Next up, tiny tidbits about big things with Cheryl Nugent. You might be wondering what's going on in other countries. Let's look at Canada, eh? Since 2019, every province and territory in Canada has had a price on carbon emissions. They took a flexible approach. Any province or territory can design its own pricing system tailored to local needs, or they can choose Canada's federal carbon tax system. The government sets minimum stringent standards that all systems must meet to make them all equally effective in reducing greenhouse gas emissions. If a province or territory decides not to price emissions or proposes a system that does not meet those standards, the federal carbon tax is put into place. The government says this ensures consistency and fairness for all Canadians. And one footnote about Canada, fuel used in agriculture and fisheries is exempted from the tax. Now back to the United States. Some of the bills in Congress dealing with carbon fees put a price on carbon emissions as well as greenhouse gases, such as hydrofluorocarbons, or HFCs. These are chemicals used in refrigerants used by some of the Alaska fishing fleet and smaller processors. HFCs are included in some bills because they are powerful greenhouse gases. Although they represent only 3% of our total emissions, HFCs are thousands of times more potent than carbon dioxide. A phase-out of HFCs was also included in the federal spending bill passed by Congress at the end of 2020. Switching to new refrigerants will involve some retooling for the seafood industry and in the U.S. and around the world. Kelp farming is, well, a growing interest in Alaska. One question that needs answering is, can kelp farming sequester carbon or help to pull carbon from atmosphere and store it elsewhere? The next question is, can kelp do so such that it mitigates ocean acidification and climate change? That's the focus of research by Sherry Umanzer at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. She's working with growers in southeast Alaska, Prince William Sound, and on Kodiak Island. So far, we're advised to think of kelp growing not so much as creating a carbon sink, where carbon is taken out of or sequestered from nature's carbon cycle and permanently immobilized. Instead, we should think of kelp as removing carbon from coastal waters where it's harvested and repurposing it elsewhere for food products, animal feed, and fertilizer. Speaking of carbon in kelp, did you know we can accurately measure how much carbon is embedded in harvested kelp? This makes it a potential reliable candidate as an offset if it should ever enter carbon offset market. Unfortunately, kelp farming would have to be on an immense scale to mitigate ocean-wide acidification, but kelp farming has some promise for mitigating acidification at the local coastal scale. To wind things up, let's look at what you can do to participate in shaping our energy future. One thing is to learn more. 
There are a couple of useful carbon pricing bill trackers that keep up with bills in Congress as they are introduced and provide comparisons between them. As we've discussed throughout this podcast series, there are certain policy choices that are made in the design of any carbon pricing bill. A couple of key questions are, how high should the tax be per ton of carbon? And then, what to do with the money? Exploring these questions can give you a better understanding of the policy debate. Adele Morris from the Brookings Institution, who is featured in this episode, has a paper called 11 Essential Questions for Designing a Price on Carbon. It's a good read for those non-economists among us. You can find links to the bill trackers and 11 essential questions for designing a price on carbon, as well as other topics covered in this episode, by visiting our website, thefutureoceanpodcast.com. You can also find all six podcast episodes there, or you could listen by subscribing to The Future Ocean on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. The Future Ocean Podcast is sponsored by the Alaska Ocean Acidification Network and is produced in Kodiak, Alaska, where electricity is generated nearly 100% by renewable energy. Music for this episode is by Chris Ann Sweeney. I'm your host, Maggie Wall.